Welcome to the Lisa Show. Okay, so what makes us human? Yeah, I'm going really deep here okay. right now. Okay, I mean, wait, hold on, hold on. No, okay, so you've got to get in the right yeah. mindset of what I'm talking about. Mm. So we all say that we have this human connection, right? Yes. That, that connects us all together. And we, and we talk about art a lot of times in that it boils everything down to what it really means to be human. So I want you just to take a second to think about that. Is it is it the flesh and blood, our ability to think and create and interact? Um, is it our ability to express or feel emotion? Hmm. What is What is something that makes us uniquely human. And what does that mean, especially in this world of advancing AI technology? I have never thought about this question. Um, and so you posing it and putting me on the spot like this, what I think, uh, I think what, uh, what I would consider to makes me human is my, um, my feelings and emotions around um, both like success or or like um, oh, like a, huh. a, a, a like achievement, achievement and the, or also loss and the and the mm. sadness that would be surrounded around that. I think that's maybe what makes me human Interesting. Those are or makes two us humans. Very specific. Well, you asked a very specific question. I know. I love that. And this is one of the reasons why I love science fiction so much, because I think that it makes us look at these difficult, human, large, what is life sort of questions in a new or interesting way. And in the new, highly acclaimed novel, Set My Heart to Fire, a robot named Jared living in the year 2054 explores this question, what does it mean to be human, and finds that it's a lot more complex than you think. So we thought this would spark a really interesting discussion, uh, this timely and uh, book. And so we've invited the author himself, Simon Stevenson. Welcome, Simon. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, first of all, can you briefly describe the premise of this book to see if I got it right? Absolutely. You, you, you got it completely right. I mean, I think the first thing I always say is I just warn people that the book set a little ways in the future. So it's set in the year 2054. Um, and I like to say it's not a dystopia but it's what I'm calling a mistopia, where humans have just missed the mark a bit. So mm. we've locked ourselves out of the internet. Elon Musk has incinerated the moon, and North Korea and New Zealand no, no longer exist because they've destroyed each other. Oh wow! Um, but, but yeah, but 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 that's all in the background. And but and not world, dystopian. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I mean, I always find that like dystopias are so um, they're so efficient. You know, there's always this incredibly efficient sort of conspiracy. Yeah over the whole thing and i just think as humans we just we make so many more mistakes than that every day um so 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 so, so i'm not calling it a, dysto- a dystopia of course pe- people are welcome to um but it's this yeah it's a little bit in the future and the good news is that means we do have androids and and the book is narrated by one such android well and i want to i want to give you props because like you say setting it in the future of 2054 that gives me hope that there will be a 2054 oh, but knowing that that you believe in a time in the yeah. future sure it may look different <laughs> or mystopian but that it still exists thank you Great, great. Well, I'm, I mean, I am, I am hopeful. You, you know, I, I completely understand. You know, but that was part of my thing was that you know, any time I read a book set in the future, it's always uh-huh. you know the worst possible future you can imagine. So, talk to us a little bit about the 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 robot, the irony, really, of a robot developing human feelings in a world where humans maybe have lost touch with emotions. Yeah, absolutely. So. Part of the idea for me was that I think we're all so used to seeing these films and these books about, you know, killer robots are, are going to kill us all. They're, they're going to destroy the planet. Um, and I think that's just such an integral part of our culture now is, is worrying about, you know, when the robots are going to kill us all. Mm-hmm. Um, but in my life, you know, I feel that the, the, you know, the technology has kind of made my life quite a lot easier um, in, in, in lots of ways. So, so I kind of wanted to sort of turn it on its head and say, well, what if humans are the bad guys? You, hmm. you, you know, what if robots are actually the best of us? You know, because they can program, yeah. be programmed to be the best of us. So, you know, they're upbeat and they're efficient and they're, you know, positive and they're not sarcastic or snarky, which, you know, obviously as humans, that's 
you know, more and more who we are. Now, you mentioned, uh, obviously, this as a book, but also this is an opportunity that people who are listening to this are going to kind of get the heads up because it's very likely that this will be turned into a movie. I absolutely hope so, yeah. the um, My day job is I'm a screenwriter uh, here in Los Angeles, California, so I've definitely been around the movie industry long enough to know not to get too excited until the cameras are physically started rolling and everyone's there on, on set. Um, that said, we're, we're in a great place because um, the main thing that gets a movie made is having a director that wants to make it, and we are very lucky that um, a wonderful director called Edgar Wright um, took an interest in this and you know has has had the book option for the studio and, and, and oh, all of that. Congratulations! Stuff. Thank you. Uh, so, when people pick up this book and they read it, what kind of uh, conversations are you hoping that it will spark? So, so, so Jared's mission is, or the mission that he sets himself, as you said, he's an android and he's not supposed to have feelings, but he ends up developing feelings. And feelings are this just this wonderful experience, this wonderful journey for him. And, yeah. you know, he, he begins to undergo this emotional awakening and even just working out which feelings he has is sometimes mm. a challenge for him. And he, though, I guess through all of that, he really just looks at the world with, with wonder, and I think sometimes mm. as humans, we, we forget to do that, don't, don't we? And particularly in a year like this. Um, so Jared really just takes, takes great delight in lots of, in lots of little things. And, um, you, you know, the book is supposed to entertain rather than necessarily, you know, teach or, or, or labor a point. But yeah, right. I would love it if, if people kind of took from it, you know, just uh, to, to pause and, you know, you know, just appreciate this this miracle and this wonder that, that that we get to share this planet with each other for now. Yeah, it's such a timely topic when when, like you say, we have kind of lost that or maybe put it aside right now. What do you think the value is for someone who may not read a lot of science fiction or who might not maybe pick up this book? But what do you think that this kind of topic and these kind of discussions why do you think that they're important right now for us all to be having yeah absolutely so, so, so i would start by saying that i'm i'm historically not myself a science fiction person but like like i love it but mm-hmm. i'm definitely not someone who's you know read as much science fiction as many people and so, and so i was very cautious about setting something in the future um because i didn't feel i almost didn't feel i was entitled to it because i wasn't fully sort of engrossed in that world so, so, so i would definitely say it's you know, my hope is it's a book for everyone, even even people like me who who weren't maybe the biggest science fiction readers. Um, and I think that um, I think that it's important that we have these conversations. I, th- I think there's lots of stuff in the book. One of the reasons why I wanted to write a book set in the in the near future was that I think we are on the cusp of this huge technological change, and we're not really having the conversations that we should be having. So, right. you know, you know, we don't have you know androids yet, but they're perhaps not as far off as some of us might think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, the climate emergency features in the book as well as, you know, obviously by 2054, things have um, carried on in that direction. So, mm. so, so I think there's lots of there's lots of conversations that as humans, we I think we prefer to just, you know, bury our he- heads in the sand and, you know, watch movies about giant killer robots rather than... <laughs> right. to, we'll to, think to, about to that later. Other. Yeah, put that <laughs> off. Put that off a little bit. We're talking with Simon Stevenson, the author of the book Set My Heart to Five. Question for you. Um, I Having not had the opportunity to... Um, to read the book yet, as I understand it, it's actually pretty funny, or that you use humor as a device to help us be able to look at ourselves. Yeah, I, I would love to think so. I mean, I am. Uh, it's always difficult calling yourself funny, isn't it? Yeah. But, um, but, but tell, but, tell yeah, us how funny the, you are, Simon. Go ahead. I, 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 am, I am hilarious. I'm the funniest person you'll ever meet. Um, <laughs> um, uh, it, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Humor is really an integral part of it, and again, I think that's you know my idea of the world and the future is that, you know, I do find lots of stuff in, in life funny. And, you know, I think that's one of the miracles of being human is, is that we have this sense of humor. Mm-hmm. And um, I think, again, you, you know, a lot of times when you read or watch things set in the future, 
that kind of sense of humor is, is, is often lacking. So um, one of my favorite books, of course, growing up was Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Right. Which sure. was, um, <laughs> you, you know, one of the few, there's not actually that many when you get down to it. No, you know, you're right. Now that, that you say that. Yeah. So, so I have a question, though, for you with it. I feel like the humor makes it more palatable, right? Like we can read something about a dystopian or a dystopian future where we're like, oh, well, isn't that terrible? Oh, my goodness. That is what we are doing right now. And it allows us where we would maybe put up an affront if it was very serious or heavy handed. Sure. We wouldn't allow that to affect us. But because it's humorous, we allow it in more frequently. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. And, and I think it goes to also that thing of just so like some, something like The Hunger Games, which, which, which I loved, you know, I used to read that and then, you know, be, really be transported into this world where I was about to be made to fight the children from the other districts. And, you know, you put the book down with a sense of relief that, oh, wow, I, I, I'm not about to be made to fight someone else from another district after all. But now, of course, you put the book down and say, oh, well, we're in a we're in a pandemic. And I think, you, yeah, yeah, it, I, I hope it does make it more palatable to kind of to, to mm-hmm. enter a future that's you know, funnier. And, and also, yeah, hopefully that then maybe lets us feel more able to, you know, to talk about to talk about these ideas and to talk about where we're headed. You're, as I was preparing for this, I, I was so impressed by your career and how different it's been. Is it true that you were a medical doctor? Now you're doing screenwriting. Now you're authoring a book. How, how were those connections made? Um, and what led you, you know, to, to writing this book? It, 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 it's a great question. It, it, it's all true. Um, what I always say at the start of my, my screenwriting meetings here when I go and meet a new producer or a new studio is I always say just because my life hasn't had any structure, please don't think I can't do structure oh. on the page in, 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 in a screenplay. So, um, so, so yeah, it's true. I, I, I was a physician. Um, I, I always loved it. Um, I, I always wrote things along the way and mm-hmm. I kind of loved writing a little bit more in the end. And um, I got... I got lucky because I am, um, I, I don't know if lucky is the right word, but um, I, my, by the end, I haven't worked in medicine for sort of seven or eight years. And by the end, I was, I was a children's doctor in London. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a very, you, you know, tough job. It's yeah. incredibly rewarding in lots of ways. But, you know, it was also, you know, mm. some of us, you know, find it too tough. Yeah. And uh, I, I, wrote, uh, I wrote a film script about a, um, uh, a depressed pediatrician who desperately needs to change. Wow. Um, I don't know where, where I got the idea. Yeah, yeah. It's so oh, weird. Oh, Just pulled head. that out of nowhere. <laughs> got it. <laughs> like, like, like magic. Um, and, and, and that strangely opened up all these doors out in Los Angeles. And, you know, I came out for some meetings about it. And suddenly uh-huh. I found that I had, you know, the possibility of a career here. And I, I stuck around and, and here I still am all these years later. The title of the, of the book is Set My Heart to Five. What, what does that mean? Yeah, so, so, so Jared is um, the android who narrates the book is, we're calling him a, a biological android. Um, and what that means is he's, he's a, essentially a human body, but he has a, a biological computer for a brain. And one of the things I learned in the, in the research of the book is that computer code is often kind of cut and pasted from one application to another. So the computer code in your car might be the same as the code that your printer runs on. Hmm. You, you, you know, right. it sort of makes sense. Um, so, so Jared, though, his code was originally used for domestic appliances. Um, and one of his programming things is that he's, he's supposed to do everything he can to appear reassuringly human. And, of course, being an android, he interprets this logically and often kind of incorrectly. So he realizes that humans often talk about their relatives and their ancestors um, so, so Jared decides that he's going to talk about his ancestor, who happens to be a toaster. So he, his, his Jared's way of um, uh, so, so, sort of expressing enthusiasm is to say, set it to five. And the reason <laughs> for that is, is because if you have a toaster in your house, it probably goes up to five. Um, uh, all the toasters I'd ever known go up to five. I've since been inundated with, you know, friends sending me pictures of toasters that go up to three. I was going to say it's like this toaster and, joke. It's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, 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 yeah, yeah. Set it to five is, is, is how he expresses, you know, maximum enthusiasm. And of course, set my heart to five is, you know, his journey is about learning to feel and all of that good stuff.
I love it. Oh, that's so interesting. And and your idea that that sparked this one, you know, from a depressed pediatrician story oh. <laughs> who needs a change to to an android set in in the near near future. Where did you get that initial spark for the the idea for this? Yeah. It's a great question. Well, I was um, I was living in San Francisco in the Bay Area, and I, I'd moved there for a screenwriting job, and I'd been there for a couple of years, and I hadn't spent much time in the Bay Area before, and I loved it. It's of course a you know an incredible place, mm-hmm. but it's also a place that's you know very much at the forefront of tech culture, and mm-hmm. it felt like every second or third person I you know got talking to in line at the coffee store or whatever you know was always working in tech, and they were always doing something that was you know incredibly impressive but also you know terrifying as well in terms of you know they're working at a startup that's building flying cars or something you know right. and, and that's, that's a real job already okay wow um so uh, so i had the sense that the future was you know the future was imminent and and i think you know right around this was 2017 2018 and you know i think we have seen all these changes in the last few years you know that you know we have uber and we have roombas and we have all these you know tech things that, that, that we didn't quite have so so i was very interested in sort of where the world was going and then my day job was um I was writing a, a, a film at Pixar, who, of course, are very well known for the emotion of their films. Oh, yeah. So, um, and, and, you know, they rightly work very hard on that. And, and it's kind of a, a laboratory for emotion, almost, uh, the Pixar campus. So um, kind of putting those two things together, of the futuristic Bay Area, and then my day job being working on, working on a film that was, you know, working to make a film emo- emotional, um, led me to this this idea that popped into my head one one afternoon which was why don't i write about uh, an android who wants to be a screenwriter what what <laughs> what film was it that you were so working great. on at pixar um so i am afraid i'm, I'm contractually not allowed to say uh it, it's funny because they, they you know they are they pixar was set up by steve jobs and so so so, so they have this you know very understandably you know, culture of not wanting to talk about things sure. until they're yeah. released, which, sure. which, which is kind of the same as Apple, of course, is, is, is the Steve, Steve Jobs connection. Well, I mean, I wasn't even supposed to say that, that, I, that I worked at Pixar, well, you, but I... Oh, you, we'll forget you about didn't, it. We've totally you know, forgotten it, it, all about it. It was us. As far as we're concerned, we've just had a conversation By ourselves. with the funniest person that we'll ever <laughs> meet, a comedian, Simon Stevenson. Uh, check out his book. It's called My Set My Heart Two five. It's available now, and you can also go to his website, simonstevenson.com. I'm looking forward to crying through whatever film that is that you didn't have anything to do with that comes out from Pixar <laughs> at a later time that is not this time but is near to this future. Simon, thanks for being with us. And congratulations on all your success. That's great. Thank you for listening to The Lisa Show. We'll be right back. This is The Lisa Show. Divorces are draining emotionally, financially, and physically. There's always more paperwork to go over. The house needs cleaning. The kids need caroling and, and, and corralling. And as the, as the parents are going through the divorce, there's a lot of things to consider. You need to take care of yourself. That kind of gets at the end of the list. However, it's easy to lose sight of it in the mountains of to-dos that accompany a divorce. Now, I've never been through a divorce uh, You've been very open about the process of you going through a divorce mm-hmm. and all the things that um, are involved in that. Yeah. And knowing, unfortunately, that there are more and more people getting divorced, especially in this time. And statistically, it will affect more people than it won't affect. Yeah. yeah. And so while the, you are trying to balance all of these things and during this divorce process, it is worth considering when you start or how you maintain making yourself a priority as well. So here to discuss with us why it's imperative that you take care of yourself during the divorce process and how to do that is CEO and founder of the online divorce course and membership Afterglow, the light at the other side of divorce, Dr. Elizabeth Cohen. Welcome, Dr. Cohen. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Do men and women have a different divorce experience? You know, I think that we are usually more familiar with women's experiences with divorce because in our culture, women have been taught that 
speaking about feelings is more appropriate and mm. is what should is the role of a woman. But I believe men and women go through very similar experiences. It's really just in our culture who we're more mm. comfortable hearing about pain from. And when we talk about this kind of pain and transition during a mm-hmm. divorce, what are the main uh, things that we're worried about that we need to be aware of, whether we're go- facing this issue or mm-hmm. someone we love is going through it? Yeah, so the biggest worry that I see with the thousands of people that I've worked with is worry that if you have children that you're going to screw them up. Mm-hmm. That's really, and that's a quote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, as someone who's been through a divorce. That's really the, the, the biggest one. And then for people who don't have a, a children, it's usually how am I going to manage with the letting go of this fantasy life that I thought I was going to have, really shifting from, oh, I thought my life was going to be one way to having to accept a different reality. Yeah, in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. it's, it's uh, and I didn't think about this um, until coming on the other side of my divorce. It, it was an interesting thing of like grief and loss that I had not mm-hmm. considered. Yes, I'm so glad you bring that up. And that's something that I think is so essential because a lot of divorce programs talk about um, healing and moving forward and a new life and a new chapter, which mm-hmm. I believe in, which is part of my program. But what I think I bring uniquely as a clinical psychologist is the ability to hold the grief and the loss that you're talking about. Because I think you, have, you must hold both in order to fully heal. Because we know if we've gone through any loss, we can even talk about it now with what's going on with COVID. You know, we can be grateful that we get to have lunch with our family, let's say, but we also have to grieve the plans that we haven't been able to have, the mm-hmm. people we haven't been able to see. I like to call it the golden and, being able to feel two things at one time, the abundance and the loss. Yeah, I think that, that a lot of people can relate to that. So when you deal with with people who are in, f- for, for a lot of reasons, the, uh, the worst moment of their life, and they mm-hmm. come to you and they're looking for, um, you know, what kind of what to do next, where do you begin that process? So I always like to tell this story about uh, my own my own experience of divorce, where I had divorced someone who was at that time an active alcoholic, and it was really painful. And I had a laundry list of things that I could list about all the things that he had done and all the ways that he had hurt me and the kids. But I realized that I could spend a lot of time doing that, or I could stop and think, wait a minute, how did I get into this situation? I'm the one who's in it. He has his own experience, but how did I get myself in it and how can I make sure I'm never in it again? Hmm. So I really recommend that people take the focus off their ex and put the focus on themselves because that's the only person we can change. We can't change the other person. So once you start feeling like, oh, there is some movement, there is some change I can do, you feel more hopeful. But we stay in that place of, oh, but if I could just change the other person. I mean, that's the thing that's so hard to to let go of, right? We Mm -hmm. focus on, man, if we could just change that thing about the other person, then this could be a successful marriage. Yeah. And I think it's really important. I'm so glad you brought that up. I think it's really important. I say this to women all the time and, and men in my program. If the other person isn't happy, the relationship is has reached its perfect closure. I really try to switch the thinking about it instead of it being an ending and something broken, but really that it's come to its full culmination when another person is finished with it. Instead of trying to get someone back to a relationship that that no Mm. longer serves its purpose. You know, we started this conversation or queued it up by talking about how you juggle all of the specifics of divorce, but then address the issue of self-care. Why is mm-hmm. self-care important during this um, this um, kind of time? And, mm-hmm. and, and what exactly do you mean by self-care? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, for exactly the reason you mentioned in the beginning of all of the overwhelm that you have with going through a divorce, um, between the legal, you know, fees and the legal documents and the switching of your home and changing all of, I mean, shifting your entire life and then having kids who are having their own emotional reaction to it and having to talk with all of their providers. I mean, just the, mm-hmm. the overwhelm that you have as a parent, you are the last, I mean, so, so many people say to me, I'll take care of myself once this is over. I just, right. Have to right. I just got to get through court. it. 
Exactly. I just have to fit when court's over, I'll take care of it. And I really encourage people. I say, if you don't take care of yourself now, it will cost you thousands of dollars in court. Because if hmm. you don't take care of yourself, meaning, and, and meaning, take a moment to figure out how you feel, what you need. Do you need to just put your phone down? Or do you need to go for a walk and call a friend? But that if you can start thinking about what you need and helping your overall body and nervous system get what it needs to come into a state of ease, you will be better prepared for court. You will be better prepared for mediation because you are taking the time that you need to what we call in psychology, settle your nervous system instead of constantly being reactive. We're talking with Dr. Elizabeth Cohen about taking care of yourself during divorce. And if I could go back and tell my mm-hmm. tell my mm. going through a divorce person one thing, I would grab that guy by the shoulders and say, "Your sleep is so much more important than mm. you than than you really? recognize. Just really? figure out a better way to sleep. It will help you deal with your ex. It will help you deal with everything that's going on. Mm. Just sleep and make sleep a higher priority." Oh, that's, I'm so glad you said that because it's, you're absolutely right. If any of us have ever been sleep deprived, which of course, as parents, we all have, you know that your thinking becomes distorted, that you make decisions based on relief in that moment, not necessarily relief in five or 10 years. And you probably know this, but when you're going through a divorce, you need to think of the long, in the long run, you need to really get out of the short right now. What do I feel and what do I need? This is planning moving forward. Um, a colleague of mine always says, you know, what's, what's your peace of mind worth? So mm, asking yeah. in this yeah. moment, right? Asking in this moment, is this really worth it? I always tell clients, would I rather be right or happy? Mm. You know, because you can keep fighting until you're right. So sure. someone sees you're right and they often won't. Well, would you rather be happy? Richie brings up, you know, sleep. And I'm wondering, are there other forms of self-care that you have found that are are more effective or the most effective during the divorce process than others? Because we throw around a lot of terms of self-care. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So my focus is really to get your body regulated, meaning that you are in a state where your frontal cortex and your amygdala, the part of your brain that is involved in thinking and processing and your emotional part of your brain, amygdala, are communicating the best. Mm-hmm. And that means, as Richie said, you're eating well, you're sleeping well, you're drinking enough water, you're kind of nourishing your body as if it's a plant. Because we are, we are organic beings. And in order for our brain to be working best, we really need to do some basic care that really you'd be surprised at how quickly that gets neglected. Another big strategy I recommend is movement. Hmm. So this doesn't have to be, you know, five days a week exercise. This can be putting on some music and dancing. This can be jumping up and down, doing jumping jacks. Movement is an incredible way to release energy and tension and to get connected back to our body. It, yeah. it, it's so basic, Right. Like, like, sleep. I know, but like sometimes your body, when you're going like through. your body needs food. So eat yeah. that food and eat, you know, good food yeah. that would be good for you. And, yeah. you know, and, and exercise. And yet we get sort of swept up in the tumultuous yeah. times of divorce and we just quickly forget those things to the to the clients that you have and to people that you speak to. How do you yeah. how do you give that sort of very simple advice in a way that it can be heard? Yeah, um, I really break it down into small pieces. As a cognitive behavioral therapist, I really believe that we can change many behaviors and thoughts by simply breaking them down into small segments. Mm -hmm. If I said to you, start eating and sleeping and exercising better, that is so overwhelming. Even as I say it, my head starts spinning, right? So you pick one small activity. So you, before you go to bed, you fill up a glass of water next to your, and you put it next to your bed. Before you get out of bed in the morning, you drink that entire glass of water. If that's what you do for two weeks, beautiful. Mm-hmm. Small, uh, manageable, and recordable uh, behavior change. 
I, I think it's so interesting that in popular culture, it's almost like we glorify this, oh, you're getting divorced. So, you know, you this is the time to sort of let everything go, right? You see the mm-hmm. montage of, of the disheveled home and people just <laughs> sitting on their couch and eating junk food and drinking too much and, you know, and, and doing everything excess because every, my life has fallen apart. And, and I wonder how much that influences or informs what, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do now you know i'm supposed to you know kind of do this and what you're saying is is really the opposite absolutely i think there's a major stigma that we have in our culture about divorce being the end of something and really really being a misery rather than a, a, a demanding time to really reflect on ourselves and take best care of ourselves yeah so i think we have to shift that completely and there's just very poor, I don't know if Richie agrees, but very poor images in our culture about what really divorce is. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And even the idea of divorce, you know, we live in a particular conservative culture that would say, you know, do everything that you possibly can mm-hmm. to to avoid divorce. And that's sometimes to an individual's own unhealthiness or fault. What What's Absolutely. your recommendation to, to individuals of like, hey, this is this is probably a time that you should consider divorce? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, one of the things, I mean, we all hear this all the time, like, I'm just going to wait till the kids, you know, go off to college, and let's just wait for this. And it's often about children. And, you know, I really like to say to people when they say that to me, okay, what would you say to your daughter, if she came to you and said, I'm with this person, Mm. I'm not really satisfied, I'm not really getting my needs met, but it's it's good enough. And I'm just going to wait until I, you know, till my next job, and then we'll break up. But what would you say? Right. Oh, yeah, and quickly, yeah. right? And quickly they're like, oh my God, I would say no way. That's terrible. I said, okay, so why aren't you taking that on your own advice? Mm-hmm. I, I love how you talk about doable pieces that anyone can start with that don't have to be con- time consuming. And I want to go back to that just for mm-hmm. a little bit because this sure. divorce process can't be so time consuming. Typically, people are working full time and taking care of kids. And so you say self-care and they immediately bristle, you know, or yeah. they think, what are you, you know, talking about? Like, exactly. I'm going to put on a face mask, light a candle. <laughs> like, I don't have time yeah. for that. No, really, oh, though. This is what no, I've, I've said true. the same thing. Yeah. To. You know, and and I heard the same thing back at myself. So how yeah. wh- how do you carve out time to start a new routine? Yeah. So really, so I think it's really important again to remember that starting with small nuggets is enough. So again, a five minutes five minutes a day is enough. Most people can find five minutes a day, and if you can't, here's a, a t- tool I suggest: when you're brushing your teeth, mm-hmm. focus on what it feels like holding the toothbrush, focus on what it feels like with the bristles against your teeth, really bring attention to that actual moment. That is a meditation. That is a mindfulness meditation paired up with a habit you're already doing. Hmm. When we pair up self-care with something that's already happening, we're more likely to stick to it. And it doesn't have to be a huge goal. Because the, the, the real key, this is what nobody tells you, but the real key is the choice that you are turning your attention on yourself. So it's not the 45-minute workout. Mm-hmm. It's the decision to put your clothes on and to take the time for yourself. That's when you're teaching yourself you matter. We got 30 seconds, and okay. uh, I would hope in that time that you give any last-minute advice that we can fit in here. Yeah, I just want to tell anyone who's going through a divorce that you're not alone, that you have a beautiful opportunity to heal and grow, and that your relationship served its purpose, that your relationship did exactly what it needed to do, and now it's time for you to learn some new lessons. And please, whatever you do, put the oxygen mask on yourself. Your kids will greatly thank you. Oh, that's great. That's great, advice. great parting advice. Dr. Elizabeth Cohen, CEO and founder of the online divorce course and membership Afterglow, the light at the other side of divorce. For more information on coping with a divorce, you can visit Dr. Cohen's divorce course column on psychology today. 
offered some really great just reminders, I think, for anybody going through a tough time, of divorce specifically, sure. but also just to remem- remember that it's easy to lose sight of those things when you're in the middle of an intense situation. But sure. Those basic small things are really going to make a huge impact in the long run. Yeah, we as people are no uh, no strangers to intense situations, yeah, right? No look, look. Look no us. further no. than the last seven months, <laughs> oh. but but really, no, but really, the doable nuggets of small mm-hmm. things, and I and I loved because how many people if you say try self care, they go I don't have time. It must yeah. be nice, yeah. but to make the the meditative process out of brushing your teeth, I'm in. Eating I can do well, that. having some movement, sleeping well, drinking more water, getting your body regulated. You're listening to the Lisa Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Lisa Show. As many of you know, here at The Lisa Show, we try our best to broach important conversations. And sadly, some of the most important conversations we should be having are sometimes emotionally difficult or have stigmas surrounding them. Well, today, in an effort to break stigmas and open up helpful discussions, we've invited Susan Burroughs on the show. Susan's the author author of Off the Rails, One Family's Journey Through Teen Addiction, in which she shares her, her experience as the mother of a teenager dealing with addictions. And she's here with us to discuss ways to find hope and healing for families like hers with teen addiction. Welcome, Susan. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you for having me. So teen addiction is a heavy but really important topic that's affecting a lot of people, probably more than we realize if we're being very honest. Can can you tell us about your experience with it in your family? Well, I think our experience uh, as a family was pretty typical and unfortunately sounds like a lot of families' experiences. It was sudden. It was unexpected. Uh, and we found ourselves always trying to catch up in our Mm -hmm. understanding of how much trouble our teen was in. Mm -hmm. You know, it starts small. Uh, Maybe they skipped school once or broke curfew. Mm -hmm. And then it gets more serious. Their appearance changes. Mm -hmm. Uh, They change their friend groups. They change their activities or lose interest in their activities. Uh, And that's, uh, that's that's where it starts. I think that um, one of the problems that we had that many people might have is that you're in denial hmm. for a long time because a lot of this mirrors what happens to normal teens. It just happens to excess. Mm-hmm. And so we were just repeating, we're not those families. We're not those families. Uh, <laughs> well, guess what? We were that family. So. What 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 was that point where it finally clicked for you? Where it mm-hmm. went from, okay, this is not a, a normal adolescent development, but we there can't is some denial. Yeah, anymore. but there is something more serious here. Yeah. Well, you know, there was uh, finding the beer can, I suppose, in in her room, and or maybe the paraphernalia, or. Um, you know, in our cases, and unfortunately, there were other high-risk behaviors, and and probably it was um, the bloody bandages that that we found, and we realized that um, there was cutting, and and uh, we came to the point where we were uh, first uh, seeing therapists one after another. Mm-hmm. Our our kid was really smart; she made hamburger out of a lot of therapists. I hate to say that because I'm a great believer in uh, the value of therapy, but, um, you know, it it did take us a few tries. And then finally, it wasn't us. We didn't make the decision. Even after uh, she overdosed, she was misdiagnosed as a bipolar disorder, uh, overdosed on lithium, Mm. was very near death, and the the therapist, the last therapist that we went to, took us aside after a disastrous session and said, you're running out of time. And those words uh, just changed everything. And even though we never saw that therapist again, I feel like she saved my daughter's life. So what did you do next when you hear those words, you're running out of time? Well, we had already uh, contacted uh, what 
in this area is called an educational consultant. And uh, they are a group of people who match teens with programs. Mm -hmm. They work with a therapist. In our case, our daughter was, uh, after her suicide, excuse me, after her overdose placed on suicide watch in a behavioral hospital. And um, they went to see her at the hospital. We first asked them to help us keep her home. That was part of that whole denial mm-hmm. of that whole denial thing. Um, but at, at, after we saw this therapist, we asked them to make the placement. Uh, we had a, a particularly difficult night with lots of banging doors and screaming and mm-hmm. threats. And uh, this happens rarely, but it does happen. Our teen actually looked at us and said, anywhere would be better than here. You just need to get me out of this house, mm-hmm. uh, which is a horrible thing for a parent to hear and to react to. But that's when we went to the educational consultant and said, help us find a program. So you found help. You found a, a program that works. I, I'm I'm sure that there are a lot of people listening who who are thinking the same thing that you maybe have thought previously, like, well, not my kid or, well, it's just, you know, the beginnings and this is normal teenage, you know, behavior. And and I'm wondering, because we have this stigma surrounding teen addiction, how do you how do you suggest that we break it and have these open conversations about how we help our teens when they're in trouble? Well, Every family is different, first of all, and mm-hmm. I would urge uh, professional intervention mm-hmm. uh, for families. And I know this is a tough time with COVID, and uh, not every family has access to uh, going to therapy or to going to the program. So mm-hmm. the first thing that I would recommend is uh, to try to do intervention as early as possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, early intervention looks really different than these programs. So what that would mean is families trying to help their teen, you know, assuming they don't have a dual diagnosis or an underlying program. If you have a teen who's experimenting with drugs uh, or with high-risk behaviors, then um, you can actually early on the National Institute of Health recommends that uh, people find other ways to generate the same rush and the same thrill uh, in their teens. So finding, helping them find a passion uh, is a great early intervention. And I would recommend that first. I would recommend that you take every step possible uh, to avoid the kinds of extreme programs that we were forced to use. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I did want to say that that, so avoidance is the first way that we deal with this, in other words. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, mm-hmm. I think that uh, you just have to understand that drug addiction is an illness, uh, like many other illnesses. And if your kid had diabetes, you wouldn't go around telling people, no, it's not diabetes. They just don't like chocolate. Right, right. You know, yeah. Right. So I think that... Um, the more we are open, the more we speak about it, uh, the more it will become, um, you know, it will become normalized for us to help our children instead of hiding the issues that they're dealing with. We're talking with Susan Burroughs about teen addiction, um, navigating our way through it. Certainly the experience which you share uh it is more on the extreme end, right? Having to to commit to a program and 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 all of those kind of things. What what do you find to be the the most fundamental um, starting point that that parents would miss? Like as you see this in in oh, other people in yeah. your community, that that kind of stuff. Like what what do you wish you could grab a parent by the shoulders and say, "Be aware <laughs> that this." Well. First of all, most of us do know somebody or know of somebody or have somebody in our family. Mm-hmm. So the first thing to be aware of is that uh, in surveys, 85% of people are saying they know somebody with addiction issues in their family or they have addiction issues in their family. So the problem is everywhere. So the first, so first we have to, we have to acknowledge that 
it could be our family. Mm-hmm. It could be us. And then we start looking for those extremes in behaviors. Uh, we try to divert those extremes early on, as I said, with some you know, other passions. And it doesn't have to be athletics, especially, again, during COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be passions. Um, my uh, other daughter right now, who is uh, stuck in the, in, in the house, uh, has made a list of 100 books that she wants to read. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah, so, so finding something to divert. Um, but I think that what we're really looking for are um, the, you know, a consistent, not a one-time, but a consistent ongoing use of drugs, use of alcohol. Um, in our case, we had uh, our, a child who ran away, mm-hmm. um, a child who uh, was manipulative, who was lying, who was uh, shut down, who withdrew from us. Mm-hmm. Because we've always had a close family. Yeah. So you know, seeing that happen, seeing these changes in their behavior was was frightening. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just wish we would have uh, picked up on it earlier. Um, that said, I, I feel a responsibility, again, to, to say to people that um, this is not an intervention that you want to use for occasional, for teens who occasionally step out of bounds. Right. 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 Yeah. Uh, I am struck by what you said earlier, which was everyone, this affects every family. This affects everybody that, that there are probably more people struggling with this and dealing with this. If it's not someone in our own home, but it's someone close to us, what are appropriate ways to really talk to a friend whose child is dealing with addiction? What are the helpful things? Well, I think that, um, you should, again, every family's different. I think that our family withdrew and we didn't really want to speak about it. Other right. families might be seeking, yeah. Right. It was just, it was too painful. I, I, yeah, I think that that is, that yeah. is an appropriate way because you, yeah, you're, you're in your own pain and, and certainly your friends want to reach out and support. What, what was helpful? Um, the friends that didn't listen to me, I yeah. <laughs> yeah. knew what you helpful. meant. The, those persistent, insistent yeah. friends. Yeah, I I think that um, for me it was the the friends who were insensitive enough to still call and sort of excuse the terminology, but brag on their kids. Yeah. You know, and I would just be like, oh, you know, what what did they do different? What did I do wrong? Mm-hmm. So um, I remember one time I was in a craft store with my other child and, and uh, a parent came walking by with their kid. And, uh, you know, she had her arm around her daughter and they were chatting about mm-hmm. where they were going for lunch. And I just, you know, just broke down in tears oh. in the middle of the craft store. It was just... Yeah. Uh, I, I don't wish this on anybody, but at the not. same time, it's so hard to see what could have been. So I would urge people to be sensitive to the fact that uh, whether you see it or not, there's just a lot of pain and a lot of shame and uh, to be sensitive to that. It's yeah. interesting. You pointed mm-hmm. out the example that I, that I really appreciate in putting it in perspective about like diabetes, right? Like we wouldn't apologize mm-hmm. for that. And, and it's interesting um, putting what you just said in that same context, like I don't think that you would ever see a parent that would say, what did I do wrong that my child has diabetes? That, mm-hmm. you know, what did I do wrong right. that my child has cancer? That's not how that works. That's not how it is. I, I would be curious to know now that you're um, on this side mm-hmm. of the journey through addiction, what is, what is life like? What is that relationship like? What is today like? Today's good. Um, we, we had a lot of trust building and, um, we had a lot of, uh, we, we still have a lot of discussion and communication. And one of the things that happened for us in these programs that even though they were extreme, uh, they gave us a channel to start having moderated conversations mm-hmm. with each other. And, um, um, I really, 
found that by respecting, by hearing, by validating uh, what my child had to say, uh, we could rebuild the trust. And I think that the entire family, because um, we did everything. We did everything with her. We went to therapy with her. We went to therapy on our own. Hmm. We read everything that she read. We slept out in the snow. So we tried to to experience what she was experiencing uh, during the during the time that she was in the program, both to understand just how difficult the program was, mm-hmm. and also um, to show our support of of her and what she was going through. And it was uh, really the result of she wrote me a letter. I've hundreds of letters from her during the time that she was away. And um, she wrote me a letter and said, it, it won't do any good if I change alone. It just, it just won't. We have to change as a family. And wow. we have to make a, a nest for, for us to come back to. So I think that that was a gift of, of this whole experience. You should always look for some sort of gift in what's happening to you. Absolutely. Um, we, we know that only two out of every five kids who um, deal with addiction are going to find long-lasting sobriety, mm. and, and that might not be the first time they try to find it. Mm. So we need to give our kids a lot of love and patience and support in every way that we can. And, um, you know, we were very, very fortunate as a family uh, that so far we are, um, you know, so far we're standing strong. Yeah. And um, I'm very proud to say that, that my daughter is, is not only uh, sober, uh, but she is also, uh, she leads AA meetings oh, and wow. she does outreach to um, different behavioral programs. So she's trying to pay back. Absolutely. Um, oh, that's that's wonderful to hear. We only have about a minute left with you, mm-hmm. but I would love to ask you about why you decided to write a book about this and and what that process was like. Was it was it so difficult? It was so difficult. Um, the programs that we used to support our daughter's recovery asked if we would speak to other parents. And what I found at that time, um, you know, in connecting with these other parents who were going through the same thing is that everybody had the same questions over and over and over ago, uh, again. Mm-hmm. And um, so we decided to, you know, to write about it. Um, and the, the book is a dual narrative. And uh, now that it's done and we've gone through many rewrites uh, and tried to find a place where we could uh, um, come together in the book. Uh, I think about the book as a love story. Oh, thank you so much, Susan. Susan Burroughs is the author of Off the Rails. It's one family's journey through teen addiction. You can find it on Amazon and you can learn more about Susan and her journey uh, by going to SusanBurroughs.com. It's a great opportunity to find some help and healing, whether it's within your own family or your friend group. Uh, a uh, a great discussion, man. You know, we 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 sort of queued it up that sometimes great we advice. that we talk about the hard things. I love that about this show that we can that we can really get into some of those things that don't get enough light shed on them, mm-hmm. and be able to just open them up and, and talk yeah. really raw and honest about it. Absolutely. The Lisa Show is a production of BYU Radio. You can find us on the BYU Radio app. Be sure that you subscribe to The Lisa Show. Now, wherever you get your podcasts, there is a big button. Sometimes it's bigger than in other places. Uh, It says subscribe. If you click it, you'll make sure that you get every single episode of The Lisa Show. And you do not want to miss a single second. Now, we'd love to hear from you. Things that you'd like to hear on The Lisa Show. uh, Other ideas that you have for guests. And just to say hello, to be part of the Lisa Show community, you can email us at thelisashow at byu.edu. Be sure to make great use of that subject line. That always helps us know where you're going with that email. If it's just a, hey, here's a guest suggestion, or, oh, I'd love this topic to be on the Lisa Show, we would love to hear from you, thelisashow at byu.edu. Thank you for making the Lisa Show a part of your day.